and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It's Thursday, February 29, Leap Day. From the front page of the Gazette today, the headline, Iowa City Schools to Consider Closing Hills Elementary. This story by Grace King. The Iowa City School Board will vote next month on whether to close Hills Elementary School this fall. One of several recommendations made by school leaders as they prepare to trim $7.5 million in district expenses over the next two years. Closing Hills Elementary, 301 Main Street in Hills, would save the district around $1.66 million, according to board documents. The more than 100 students currently enrolled there would be sent to different elementary schools, like Alexander and Weber Elementary Schools, Superintendent Matt Degner said during a board meeting on Tuesday. I do believe our kids will be successful in another school in the district. We have great facilities and great staff that are creating those great stories you heard at the microphone tonight, Degner said, referring to the dozens of people who advocated for Hills Elementary during public comment. Speakers included Hills Mayor Tim Kemp, parents and residents. The boardroom was filled with about 50 people. If Hills closes, its teachers and staff would have the option of being reassigned to another school in the district, and students still would have access to the services they now get at Hills, including preschool. School officials cited budget constraints and overall declining enrollment in the district as the reason to consider closing Hills, the smallest elementary school in the district. The recommendations made to reduce the district's budget are expected to be voted on by the school board at its next regular meeting, 6 p.m. March 26th, at the Educational Services Center, 1725 North Dodge Street, Iowa City. School board members indicated support in closing the elementary school, which has the highest cost per student and lowest enrollment of schools in the district. Board member Lisa Willems, Williams said she would make the decision to close an elementary school over other budget reduction ideas, such as letting teachers go. I'm not willing to fire people when there are other places we can make cuts, she said. We are operationally inefficient in several areas, and we have to fix that. Otherwise, we have to cut our people, and we have to cut our programs. To me, operational efficiency is going to be what I focus on, Williams said. Yes, we're focusing on hills tonight, but we are going to have to look at retiring more schools potentially next year. Degner said there are no recommendations at this time to close any of the district's other elementary schools. Board member J.P. Clausen said if hills closes, those students still will be at the best school district in the state of Iowa. They will have a great education experience. I know what that means personally, and I know what happens when you lose it. This is not easy. I'm not even saying I've decided, Clausen said. Enrollment at Iowa City Elementary Schools next year is projected to be 70% of the district's capacity. This leaves about 3,000 open spots for elementary students. A large portion of the projected decline in elementary enrollment can be attributed to the plan to move sixth graders from the district's elementary schools to its middle schools this fall, a change approved by the school board in February 2022. The anticipated enrollment next year at Hills for PK through fifth grade 
is 126 students with a capacity of 200 students. The cost per student is projected to be just over $7,000, about $1,000 more than the district's anticipated average cost per elementary student. For the 2021-22 school year, 70% of the Hills elementary students were bused to the school from areas north of Hills, the southern portion of Iowa City, and unincorporated parts of Johnson County. Only about 45 students who attend Hills live in the town. About 30% of Hills students are English language learners whose first language is not English. District officials did explore other options for Hills, including the feasibility of transferring other students into Hills, according to board documents. They found this doesn't make fiscal sense because while it would decrease the cost per pupil at Hills, it would increase transportation costs and per pupil spending at the other schools. The Iowa City District is not alone in needing to reduce costs. Earlier this month, Des Moines Public Schools officials announced the need to avoid at least $14 million in expenses from its budget Last year, the Cedar Rapids Community School District trimmed $2 million from its general fund budget. Like many school districts in Iowa, Iowa City Schools has faced declining enrollment since the pandemic began in spring 2020. During the 2019-2020 school year, the district had an enrollment of about 14,500 students. This dropped to 14,200 students during the 2020-21 school year, and rebounded to 14,440 students this year. Other recommendations to reduce expenses include adjusting the district's weighted resource allocation model, which is used to control class sizes based on rates of students who face barriers in their education. This would result in a reduction of seven full-time educators, a $630,000 savings. In an interview earlier this month with the Gazette, Deputy Superintendent Chase Ramey said reductions in teaching staff would be made through attrition. Reducing an additional five teachers through normal attrition would be a $450,000 savings. Finally, school officials proposed increasing employee insurance contributions an additional $770,000 in savings to the district. Certified staff would pay $50 a month with a single plan, and classified staff would pay $40 a month for a single plan. Degner introduced some options for the future that could create long-term cost savings. One option is to pair schools to increase operational efficiency. For example, instead of having a K-5 elementary school, there would be schools for K-3 graders and schools for 4th and 5th graders to increase class flexibility. He also suggested closing some elementary schools and reopening them as preschool centers. Another option is to revisit elementary attendance zones with the focus on efficiency. School officials also made alternative recommendations to save money, although they could have a more negative impact on students' experiences, such as cutting more teachers or bus routes. During the public comment period, Kids, parents, and community members shared their desire to see Hills Elementary remain open. Why is Hills chosen as the sacrificial lamb, said Mayor Kemp, noting that the district talks about equity for all. Marcella Hurtado, who has a child attending Hills, said it's a good place for students who are immigrants. 
The small student body enables teachers to give students one-on-one -on -one attention, she said. Please don't close the school, Hurtado said in translated Spanish. Anna Cano, who has a daughter at Hills, said she is sad and disappointed that the school could close. At Hills, her daughter is surrounded by other students from Spanish-speaking households. She appreciates that her daughter can communicate in both English and Spanish in school and become bilingual. Cano said she is worried her daughter won't receive the same education elsewhere. Jolene O'Brien, age 11, a sixth grader at Hills, said teachers there supported her in catching up in reading and speech. I had a teacher who always told me I had style, and I was fabulous when I wore princess dresses and floppy hats to school. He built myself a self-esteem, and I will never forget him. I feel safe and protected at Hills, Jolene said. Also on the front page, with a photo in the article, Awards Celebrate Students' Kindness and Leadership, this story by Grace King. Wright Elementary School 5th grader Avery Enick Anna Quetchi is described by her teacher as brave, empathetic, having a kind soul, and a leader. She tackles hard issues such as equality and racism with kindness. She is not afraid of the tough issues, said Josh Reynolds, Avery's teacher. She'll stick up for anybody. She's a quiet kiddo, but she's not afraid to stand up and speak up. Reynolds said Avery's self-motivation is inspirational. At the beginning of the school year, Avery decided she was going to read more than 400 pages of the class's reading curriculum book. She finished it in early December. On Wednesday, Wright Elementary 5th graders took trifold posters they created featuring historic black colleges and universities and presented them to students at Washington High School. Avery's poster featured Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, which she chose because of its veterinary program and dance team. Avery, age 10, is one of 14 students in the Cedar Rapids Community School District, recognized today with a 14 Under 14 award from Kids First Law Center. The program highlights young leaders under the age of 14 for exemplifying positive leadership qualities, good citizenship, problem solving, empathy, and kindness. The awards are being presented at 4 p.m. today at the downtown Cedar Rapids Public Library Whipple Auditorium, 455th Avenue Southeast. The event is free to the public. We as parents all think our kids are great, and it's a whole other amazing feeling to know that other people see how great they are, said Jen Cannon, Avery's mother. The students are nominated by educators and staff in their schools for the award. A selection committee narrows the nominees to 14 recipients. This is the third year recognizing students for 14 under 14. The Kids First Law Center gives children a voice in divorce, custody, and other conflicts by providing them with legal representation and services. Another student, Xavion McBride, age 13, a seventh grader at Roosevelt Creative Corridor Business Academy, also was nominated by his teacher for being a leader and positive role model. His teacher, Myra Hall, said he quietly nudges others to do the right thing, like quiet down when it's time to do classwork. Hall calls it the Xavion way. Xavion is the first to help resolve classroom conflicts while remaining calm and cool, Hall said. His classmates and teachers recognize his leadership ability 
as he models his school's expectations that students be safe, respectful, and responsible. Zavion also plays basketball and is captain of his team. He's a leader on and off the court, said his mother, Rosalind Hawk. We're definitely proud of him. Other students who received the 14 Under 14 awards and what the selection committee said about them. Devendra Bahadur, 11, a 6th grader at Taft Middle School, is an agent for change. He is guided by strong morals and dedicates himself to service for others. Kyra Brown, 13, an 8th grader at McKinley Middle School, is a student athlete taking on leadership roles and volunteering in many student organizations. Evie Creighton, 13, an 8th grader at Wilson Middle School, plays volleyball and basketball. She is courageous, a courageous voice for students, even speaking to the Cedar Rapids School Board on behalf of her classmates. Hannah Jones, age 11, a 5th grader at Erskine Elementary, consistently models kindness for her peers. She is patient and generous in helping other classmates. Isaiah Julis, age 13, an 8th grader at Wilson Middle School, uses her lunchtime to provide volunteer tutoring for her classmates. Tegan Cuniega, 13, a 7th grader at McKinley Steam Academy, values personal connections and often can be found in one-on-one -on -one deep conversations when others are focused on electronic devices instead. Ariel Matuakanunu, 13, an 8th grader at Roosevelt Creative Corridor Business Academy, is mature, patient, and reliable. Avariana Norberg, age 11, a 5th grader at Harrison Elementary School, shows empathy and resilience. She's the first person to offer assistance when a student is crying, even if she doesn't know them. Jonellis Roman, age 12, a 6th grader at Franklin Middle School, excels academically and is always willing to help her classmates. Natalie Ross, 12, a 7th grader at Franklin Middle School, is starting a kindness club for sharing both big and small acts of kindness throughout school. Kervance Telsey, age 10, a 4th grader at Hoover Elementary, is a model of persistence. When facing a difficult task, he always asks for help and works to complete the best product possible. And lastly, Abdi Youssef, age 10, a 5th grader at Johnson Johnson Steam Academy is an open-minded peacemaker. He can always be counted on to tell the truth to peers and teachers. And the photo that accompanies the article is of Avery Anikowicki, who is presenting her poster at the Washington High School. Turning now to some Iowa Today news, the Iowa City School Board approves land buy amid budget worries. This story by Grace King. Iowa City Community School District is purchasing nearly 19 acres of land southwest of Iowa City as a potential future school site, but has no immediate plans to develop the property as a school. The school board Tuesday unanimously approved the purchase of the property south of Rarit Road for $607,100, or $32,500 per acre, from Stephen M. Carson and trustees for several Carson Family Trusts. The property is being purchased with the Capital Projects Fund, Secure and Advanced Vision for Education, or SAVE. SAVE is funded by statewide sales taxes allocated by the state to school districts based on enrollment. 
Any plans to build on the new property would be a part of a new facility master plan after the 2029-30 school year that would need approved by the school board. This is a long-term investment. While we are having difficult conversations tonight, it's incumbent for us to look to the future of the school district, said Chase Ramey, deputy superintendent of the school district. Before approving the purchase, the board had a lengthy discussion about recommendations made by school officials on how to trim $7.5 million in district expenses over the next two years. One of the recommendations is to close Hills Elementary School, which would save the district about $1.66 million. School officials cited budget constraints and overall declining enrollment in the district as a reason to consider closing Hills, the smallest elementary school in the district. The recommendations made to reduce the district's budget, including closing Hills Elementary, are expected to be voted on by the board at its next regular meeting, 6 p.m. March 26th. Superintendent Matt Degner said the timing of presenting this property purchase to the school board is unfortunate. However, school officials think the purchase is an important long-term investment. The purchase expense comes from different school funds than operating an elementary school, Degner said. The decision to purchase the property was made based on development plans for the area, which includes significant housing construction over the next decade, according to board documents. In November of 2021, the Iowa City School District asked voters to consider an extension of its plans to spend save money. The extension passed with 87% approval. The extension allows the district to continue its facility master plan through the 2029-30 school year. The purchase of new property is part of that plan. The district has been engaged with the City of Iowa City's planning staff, developers, and the public for years regarding the projected growth in the community, Ramey said. The city recently has completed the construction of a sanitary sewer trunk line under Highway 218. The trunk line eventually will extend westward to currently undeveloped property located on the south side of Rarit Road. It is anticipated that once developed, several hundred homes could be built there in the next several years. The district owns another two pieces of undeveloped property in the northern tier of the district, one site sits across from North Liberty, or excuse me, the Liberty High School District, south of Dubuque Street in Coralville, and the other is located north of Liberty High School, off North Liberty Road in North Liberty. These two parcels we have has given us a lot of flexibility. It's such a quicksand we're on about what enrollment's going to look like, what our needs are going to be, school board member Lisa Williams said. We're not building anything on them anytime soon. And also in Iowa Today news, a child killed in Cedar County UTV crash. This by Emily Anderson. An 11-year-old from Wheatland was killed Tuesday in a utility terrain vehicle crash in rural Wheatland, according to a report from the Iowa State Patrol. The 11-year-old was a passenger in a UTV that was being driven Tuesday by a 10-year-old, also from Wheatland, in the 2300 block of 210th Street in rural Cedar County. At about 6 p.m., the driver lost control of the vehicle, which entered the ditch next to the road and rolled. 
Both children were taken via ambulance to Genesis East Hospital in Davenport, where the 11-year-old died. The crash report does not indicate the severity of the other child's injuries. The children are not identified in the crash report. The Iowa State Patrol was assisted in responding to the crash by Bennett Ambulance and Fire, Clarence Ambulance, Loudoun First Responders, the Tipton Police Department, and Cedar County Sheriff's Office. The crash remains under investigation by the Iowa State Patrol. Also in Iowa Today News, a woman dies in the Cedar County house fire. This by Emily Anderson. A 77-year-old woman was killed Tuesday in a house fire in rural Cedar County, according to the Cedar County Sheriff's Office. The Sheriff's Office was called about 5 p.m. Tuesday to 117 Hoover Highway for a report of a house fire. A resident of the home, Janet Stafford Bechtold, was found dead inside. The cause of the fire is still under investigation, according to a news release. Multiple departments responded to the incident, including the Oxford Junction Fire Department, the Loudoun Fire Department, the Oxford Junction Ambulance, the Tipton Ambulance and the Cedar County Sheriff's Office, and the Iowa Fire Marshal's Office. Turning now to the Insight page, 24-hour doorman today is titled, Who Will Win Before the Semi-Quin? Let's break free of our golden dome of wisdom for a moment and ponder the future. And the future I'm pondering is 2026. Do you, like me, have semi-quincentennial fever? Or maybe it's semi-quin, sestercentennial, or quarter millennium, no matter how you say it. On July 4, 2026, it will be the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Take that, Brits. Yes, fine, the Continental Congress voted on July 2, and the Declaration wasn't signed until August 2. I bet you sticklers are fun at semi-quincentennial celebrations. One of the most important issues regarding America 250 which is what a federal commission planning the celebration calls it, is who will be our president as this big national moment passes. If it's President Joe Biden, we can expect a truly authentic celebration. After all, he was there when the declaration was signed. Rimshot, get it? He's old. Surely there will be parades, fireworks, and big doings in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and other cities and towns with historic ties to independence. Sure, Biden might inadvertently call George Washington, George Costanza, or, God forbid, eat ice cream. It won't be a massive Biden ego trip, not his style. And like the bicentennial in 1976, there may be a renewed interest in the country's history. That would be great, so long as it's real history, chronicling the nation's triumphs, failures, and problems, marring the U.S. to this day. No, kids, George Costanza didn't cut down a cherry tree. If Donald Trump is president again, the nation's 250th birthday will be all about him. He's also old, but his childishness may have fooled you. You may recall last year in a video, Trump suggested a great American state fair lasting for a year would be a centerpiece in his celebration plans, but where would it be held? My hope is that the amazing people of Iowa will work with my administration to open up the legendary Iowa State Fairgrounds to host the Great American State Fair 
and welcome millions and millions of visitors from around the world to the heartland of America for this special one-time festival, Trump said in a video, according to Politico. Together we will build it and they will come. But that was before Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds endorsed Trump's primary rival, Ron DeSantis. Iowa may now be on the naughty list. Perhaps Trump, Trump can make his ally, Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd, governor of the Great American State Fair. She will rule with an iron fist. Trump also wants some sort of Patriot Games for high school athletes and hopes to revive his National Garden of American Heroes. Who gets to pick the heroes? Who do you think? There also will be a parade of military vehicles painted gold and marked with the red T emblem. Okay, Trump hasn't said that, but you know he's thinking it. As for history, Trump started the 1776 project to promote whitewashed patriotic education. He said American loathing libs are weaving a twisted web of lies. But the best aspect of America 250, presented by MAGA, is we'll be celebrating the long history of our republic's democratic institutions as they're being blown up. Ooh, ah. And we have one community letter today. Restrictive abortion laws ignore reality. Iowans value freedom, especially when it comes to our health care and family planning, including abortion access. However, some extreme MAGA Republicans aligned with Kim Reynolds are threatening these freedoms by pushing for a near-total near abortion ban in Iowa. Restrictive abortion measures ignore the reality of people's lives. Governor Reynolds defends her abortion ban in the name of protecting unborn children, ignoring the suffering it inflicts on pregnant individuals who urgently need access to health care. Americans overwhelmingly support access to abortion, especially for sexual violence victims and those facing health risks, even in conservative states and among Republicans. However, MAGA Republicans exploit this by promoting deliberately impractical exceptions, allowing them to appear moderate without actually compromising on abortion access. While doctors are left to determine vague laws that restrict their ability to practice medicine, women such as Kate Cox of Texas are left with few options and must resort to extreme measures to ensure their health and safety. When laws lead to human suffering or death, their justification becomes irrelevant. Ignoring the voices and needs of Iowans in policy-making processes is inherently cruel. As supporters of abortion access, we stand together to defend our rights and ensure that every Iowan has the freedom to make their own choices about their bodies and health care. We cannot remain silent while lawmakers strip rights and freedoms away from Iowans. And that letter today is signed by Robert Tierney in Cedar Rapids. And this article is titled, What is Leap Day? From the Washington Post, if you look at your calendar this week, you will see an unusual date, February 29. That's because 2024 is what's known as a leap year. And there's actually an important scientific reason leap years exist. Here's what to know. A leap year takes place roughly every four years when an extra day is added to the Gregorian calendar, making the total duration of that year 366, not 365 days. The extra day is added at the end of the month of February. February 29 is known as leap day. 
It's not an official holiday in the United States, but in parts of the world, leap days are not treated as regular old days. In Ireland, for example, women are encouraged to propose to their partners on leap days, flipping traditional gender roles. In parts of China, children give their parents gifts. In some countries, leap days are popular days for weddings. Leap years happen because of a mismatch between the calendar year and Earth's orbit, according to NASA. While we think of one year as lasting 365 days, it actually takes a little longer, approximately 365 days and 6 hours for the Earth to orbit the Sun. So around every 4 years, we add 24 hours, or 4 times 6 hours, to the calendar. Leap days are what keep our seasons and our calendars in sync, which in turn makes it possible for farmers to grow crops and for humans to celebrate religious and other holidays around the same time each year. Shauna Edson, an astronomy educator at the National Air and Space Museum, previously told the Post that without them, our calendars would be ahead of the Earth's orbit by a day every four years, amounting to 24 days each century. This means that, slowly but surely, our seasons and solstices would occur at vastly different times than we are used to. At first we might not notice, Edson said, but there eventually would be a time that we'd be celebrating the 4th of July and it'd be snowing. According to the National Geographic, the mismatch between human calendars and the orbit of the Earth and the Sun caused chaos for centuries, leading ancient societies in Egypt and China and later the Roman Empire to come up with the workaround. But nothing quite worked until Pope Gregory XIII implemented the Gregorian calendar and its leap year system. Not everyone uses the Gregorian calendar. The Hebrew calendar, for example, has an extra month on certain years within a 19-year period to ensure that religious holidays align with solar seasons. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 29, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now we turn to today's obituaries, beginning with the short notices. First in Cedar Rapids, Ronald D. Denny, age 83, died Sunday, February 25, Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center. Also in Cedar Rapids, Harold L. Schultz, age 88, died Wednesday, February 28, Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Alberon, Linda Lee Steffens, 62, died Tuesday, February 27, Cruz Phillips Funeral Home, Tama Toledo. In Marion, Mary Mathis, 68, formerly of Tipton, died Tuesday, February 27, Fry Funeral Home in Tipton. In Ossian, Rick Nesvik, age 65, died Monday, February 26th. Helms Funeral Home in Decorah is assisting. And in Walker, Terry A. Mosher, age 59, died Tuesday, February 27. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Center Point. Turning now to the regular notices, first in Iowa City, James, or J.T. Richard Tanner, 56, passed away Wednesday, February 14 at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Services will be held at a later date. J.T. was born August 22, 1967 in Cedar Rapids. 
the son of Richard and Jean Good Tanner. He graduated from Marion High School and Iowa Wesleyan College. From Grinnell, Robert, known as Bob Hamilton, 59, passed away at home in Grinnell on Sunday, February 25th, after a battle with cancer. Visitation and celebration of life will be held Saturday, March 2. Visitation from 1230 to 3 at Smith Funeral Home in Grinnell. Please join us to celebrate his life at Grinnell Craft Brew House from 3 to 5 p.m. The family encourages Hawkeye attire. From Independence, Cynthia L. Drayfall, age 64, passed away February 26th at her home after a long illness. Cindy was born September 4, 1959 in Independence. She graduated from Independence Jefferson High School in 1978. A private service will be held at a later date. The Reef Family Center and Funeral Home and Crematory is assisting the family with arrangements. From Anamosa, Raymond Leroy Ferguson, age 95, passed away at his home on Saturday, February 24. Visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel State Room on Saturday, March 2nd, from 9 a.m. until 11. Funeral service will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories Saturday, March 2nd, at 11 a.m. with pastors Jim and Chris May. A live stream of the service will be available. Under Raymond's obituary, starting Saturday, March 2nd at 11 a.m., interment to follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery Garden of the Last Supper. Raymond was born on August 8, 1928 in Urbana, Iowa, the son of the late Raymond S. and Gladys Sanders Ferguson. From Niswa, Minnesota, Robert, known as Bob, Arthur Slaybaugh, age 57, Born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa on January 18, 1967 at St. Luke's Hospital to Robert and Geraldine Laws Slaybaugh, Bob blessed us all with his presence until February 22nd. He was united in marriage to Sue Stagg in September of 1992, lovingly raising their two children. A celebration of life will be held at two separate locations. On April 27th, in Cedar Rapids at Kingston's Steakhouse from 4 to 7, and on May 5th in Niswa at the Niswa Community Center from 3 to 6 p.m. Online condolences for the family can be shared on the guestbook at www.brenny.com. A memorial fund for the family has been established. And lastly, from Edgewood, Christine Marie Jackson. On February 27, the Lord brought his creation, Christine Marie Jackson, home with him in his heavenly realm after leading her, lending her presence to us for 70 years. She was born May 5, 1953, in Waukegan, Illinois, the daughter of Velma Beam and Herbert Sandberg. As a young girl, her family moved from Illinois to Cedar Rapids, where she graduated from Kennedy High School in 1971. Chris then attended Grace College in Winona Lake, Indiana. Online condolences can be sent to www.leonard-mullerfh.com. The memorial service for her is 10.30 a.m. Monday, March 4, at Edgewood Bible Church in Edgewood, Iowa, Pastor Jim Reinhardt officiating. Visitation is from 4 to 7 p.m. on Sunday, March 3, at the Leonard Mahler Funeral Home in Edgewood. 
Friends may also call an hour before the service at the church on Monday. Inurnment will be at the Edgewood Cemetery in Edgewood. Turning now to the sports page, Girls State Basketball is highlighted. This article is titled Full Court Mayhem by Jeff Linder. Sometimes to get a handle on Northland's dizzying, trapping, suffocating full court mayhem, it's best to ask those who have faced it. So here is Montezuma's Ellen Cook. They know when to come at you. You don't know when they're coming. You've got to keep your head on a swivel. And Montezuma's Claire Urselius, they're very like in your face. Once you calm down and square up, you've got a much better chance. It took the Bravettes 16 minutes too long. The top-ranked Lynx spun number 9 Montezuma around in the first half and coasted to a 68-38 Class 1A quarterfinal victory at the Girls State Basketball Tournament Wednesday afternoon at Wells Fargo Arena. We have a lot of talent, Cameron Kurt said, and a lot of girls who like to work hard and like to run, run, run. We try to run teams out of here if we can, Allie Howenberry said. North Lynn, at 24-1, sprinted to a 35-6 halftime lead and stretched its winning streak to 23 games. The Lynx advanced to Friday's 1A semifinal against number 4 Council Bluff St. Albert, 23-1. It is the Lynx's fifth trip to the semifinals in their current six-year state run. Credit to the kids, Northland coach Brian Wheatley said. When they get here, they usually don't freeze. They're confident. Northland converted its first four shot attempts and had an 8-0 lead in less than two and a half minutes. It was 11-2 after a quarter. Then run and stun press really took hold. The Lynx stung the Bravettes, 20-5, with the last 17 points of the half in a 4 58 span. Their style of play, there's really no way to combat it, Montezuma coach Janelle Burgess said. You just can't give them live ball turnovers. Northland finished with 14 steals, 6 by Kurt, who also scored 18 points and 6 assists. Macy Bogue led all scorers with 20 points. Howenberry added 12. It's my fourth year here. A lot of us have been here three or four years, Bogue said. You get nerves out of the way a little earlier if you've been here before. Montezuma was far more competitive in the second half, getting outscored only 33-32 to 32 after intermission. We came back out like we had nothing to lose, Urselius said. Cook scored 12 points, Urselius 10. The Bravettes' top four scorers will be back for 2024-25. Who thought we'd be back this year, Burgess said. Our seniors were great leaders. We were youthful, and I'm excited to see what we can do in the future. Northland's present consists of a Friday date with St. Albert at 1.30 p.m. The Saints ended Algona Garrigan's two-year title reign, 53-42, on Wednesday. We all know what we can do and what we want to do, Bogue said. And also by Jeff Linder, this article is titled Semifinal Field Again Loaded with WOMAC. Get ready for a WOMAC Conference Semifinal Bonanza at the Girls State Basketball Tournament. Mount Vernon, Solon, Clear Creek Amana, back to back to back, all with a legitimate shot to play for a championship this weekend. 
We came here to play three games, CCA coach P.J. Sweeney said Tuesday after the Clippers blitzed Gilbert in a Class 4A quarterfinal. Here's a reset. Number four, Mount Vernon, at 22-3, and three, faces number one, Esterville Lincoln Central, at 23-2, and two, in the first 3A semifinal at 1.30 p.m. In the second 3A semifinal, number three, Solon, at 22-3, and three, meets number two, Des Moines Christian, at 24-1, and one, at 3.15. Today's Walmack finale is a 4A battle at 5 p.m. between top-ranked Clear Creek Amana and number five, North Polk. The champions of the East and West Divisions, Mount Vernon and CCA, were jaw-droppingly impressive in the first round. Mount Vernon played really free, according to coach Nate Sanderson, and hammered number six, Harlan, 67-25. to The Mustangs will need to be sharp again against ELC, which got 44 points from junior whiz Haley Stokes in a 61 to 47 first round win over number 12 Forest City. Clear Creek Amana was 0 and 2 in its short state tournament history before Tuesday, but it was clear quickly that this is a different team. Avery Lauer scored 17 points. Bliss Beck added 16 and Ava Locklear 14 points, 17 rebounds, 9 assists, very nearly posted a triple-double. We're definitely not satisfied, Locklear said. While the Mustangs and the Clippers appear to be destined for coin flip games, Solon looks like a significant favorite to advance to the 3A final despite Des Moines Christian's higher ranking. The Spartans emerged from a 39-39 third-quarter tie to hold off number 7 Dubuque Wallert. DMC edged number 8 Benton Community. I think we have a good chance in the semifinals, Solon Sr. Haley Miller said. I don't want to take anything for granted. We've got to keep up the intensity. The WAMAC has three teams in the semifinals for the second straight year. Benton Community, Solon, and Benton Shellsburg made up three-fourths of the 3A Final Four last season. If you're into looking ahead, the 3A championship game is at 8 p.m. Friday, and the 4A title is 2.30 Saturday afternoon. Former Iowa player Mackenzie Meyer is among the three 2024 inductees into the Iowa Girls Basketball Hall of Fame. Meyer was named Miss Iowa Basketball 2016 for Mason City, which won the 4A championship that year. She was a starter on Iowa's Elite Eight team in 2019. Pat Hodgson, Glenwood, 1974, and Caitlin Ingle, Southeast Polk, 2013, round out this year's Hall of Fame class. The induction ceremony is at halftime at the 2A title game on Saturday. Other award recipients include for the E. Wayne Cooley Scholarship, Jesse Clemens of Pleasant Valley. For the Golden Plaque of Distinction, Kristen Meyer, coach at West Des Moines Dowling. For the Jack North Basketball Award, Audie Crooks, a 2023 graduate of Algona Garrigan and an Iowa State freshman. First Lady Award goes to Deanne Cromer, Athletics Director at Pleasant Valley. Character Counts Coach of the Year is Darcy Fair from Riceville. 
and the Executive Director's Award goes to Chuck Britton, IGHSAU, and Molly Phillips, Iowa PBS. In a closer look at today's games, the Class 3A semifinals, number four, Mount Vernon versus number one, Esterville ELC at 1.30 p.m. Number three, Solon at 22-3 versus number two, Des Moines Christian at 24-1. That game is at 3.15 p.m. And Clear Creek Amana, 24-0, faces number five, North Polk, 23-2. That game is at 5 p.m. Turning now to the things to do column, uh, again uh, listed is the 14 under 14 awards. That's the Kids First Law Center will hold the third annual 14 under 14 awards from 4 to 5 p.m. at the Cedar Rapids Public Library. The cost is free. In the educational category, Walter Greeson, DeWitt Wallace Professor of History at McAllister College, will present on historical thinking and democratic citizenship. That takes place at Coe College Hickok Hall, 7 to 8.30 p.m. this evening, and that also is free. Turning now to the hoopla section, the title is Hot Topic, this by Diana Nolan. Facing the Inferno brings a wildfire exhibit to the Old Capitol Museum in Iowa City. Photo documentarian Carrie Greer sees not only the danger, but also the beauty of the natural order of wildland fires. And since the 1990s, she's been capturing the landscape and the workers involved in getting wildfires under control. The harrowing beauty of these images is on display through May 10 at the Old Capitol Museum's ground floor gallery in downtown Iowa City. Facing the Inferno, the wildfire photography of Carrie Greer captures not only the sheer magnitude of the blazes in the West, but also the people who are fighting to contain and redirect those fires, which can burn for months. And just because Iowans don't face those threats on the same scale, if at all, the haze from fires in the West and Canada drift into Iowa, affecting air quality and visibility. This past summer, the drift from Canadian wildfires blanketed Cedar Rapids, obscuring the downtown skyline and causing some outdoor activities and concerts to be either moved indoors or canceled for safety's sake. Photographer Greer will meet with UI students during her residency at the end of March, which Smith said will be especially valuable for photojournalism students. They'll be able to see how their imagery can live on as fine art separated from the context of helping tell a story of a single event in the news. For school teachers wanting to bring their students to the exhibit, Smith and her colleague Carolina Kaufman, Director of Education and Engagement, have developed an extensive network of links to various curriculum interests, from history and geography to engineering and technology, public safety, visual art, business, and more. Their goal is to open the doors for learning in this gallery and others across the two Pentacrest Museum. Smith wants visitors to discover that when they come to these spaces, they're going to be surprised and they're going to see something they haven't seen before. It's always going to be changing and it's going to be thought-provoking. It's going to be eye-catching and inspirational. Those are things that you can count on, not only with this exhibit, but just knowing 
that when you walk into that museum, there's going to be something new down there, and it's going to be thought-provoking. It's going to be topical, and more times than not, it's going to be beautiful. In the food category, Yummy Vietnamese Delights is the title of this article by Elijah Decius. A new sandwich shop is trying to expand the local Vietnamese palate by going beyond pho. Yummy Banh Mi opened in June at the Hiawatha location, formerly home to the breakfast bar, offers a curated menu of sandwiches and a selection of vegetarian soups alongside a drink menu of milk and fruit teas plus Vietnamese coffee specialties. With bread baked in-house daily, the breadth of the menu is surpassed by the deep ties that it represents to owner Lisa Nguyen, who grew up in Vietnam but has lived most of her life in Iowa. I want to bring more culture, more diversity in food to the community, she said. In brief, if you go, it is yummy banh mi, 1950 Blairs Ferry Road Northeast in Hiawatha. Hours are 10 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Sunday, and they're closed on Monday. You can reach them by phone at 319-200-4254 or yummybanmi.godaddysites.com. Again, they have a curated selection of authentic Vietnamese sandwiches on fresh baguette bread served at a moderate price, alongside vegetarian soups, baba tea, and Vietnamese coffee. They are available for dine-in, carry-out, drive-through, and delivery by Grubhub and DoorDash. Chew on This by Elijah Decius is titled, Iowa River Power Favorites Return at the Highlander. An old Coralville favorite is reigniting the flame of a bygone era at the Highlander Hotel in Iowa City. The former Iowa River Power restaurant, which closed in November after being forced out by its landlord, is being rebirthed as the Supper Club, with Sunday brunch and dinner service four nights a week. It really is a good fit. You take an iconic restaurant, an iconic hotel, smash them together, and bam! said Angela Harrington, owner of the Highlander Hotel in Iowa City. I really envisioned this as a full-service resort. Thanks to Denise Petzl, I'll have a full-service restaurant with all the trappings of a true supper club. Brunch service starts March 24 and will run every Sunday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Cost for adults is $32.95 and includes non-alcoholic beverages. Dinner service from Thursday through Sunday starts April 4. For reservations, email hello at highlander.us or call 319-354-2000. Open table online reservations will be available starting this week with virtually the exact same menu made by the same staff from the Iowa River Power. Diners can expect prime rib, filet, lobster, duck, and seafood. In addition to serving a formal dining room and family-friendly dining room with capacity of 100, the Supper Club will serve hotel guests daily with a more limited menu and complimentary breakfast. The nice thing about a Supper Club is you get what you pay for. Most restaurants have gone to this style where you have your salad, potato, vegetable, bread, 
an entree, and now you pay $100, said Petzl, former owner of the Iowa River Power. But if you order off a supper club menu, you know exactly what you're paying for those. It's a leisurely, heartier feeling food. The new collaboration for the supper club also plans to incorporate entertainment with dinner in true retro style, including a grand celebration planned for June with the Glenn Miller Orchestra. The Highlander Hotel, which underwent a $10 million restoration after Harrington purchased it in 2019, was a renowned supper club in its heyday in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. In the 90s, it became franchised as a Radisson Hotel before turning into a Clarion property. The renovation boosted the standing of a highly distressed property with its award-winning commercial renovation pulling it out of a rut as a hotel previously ranked dead last by customers in Iowa City. Today, the hotel's new branding and restoration with modern aesthetics offers a callback to the free-spirited vibes of the 70s. Since the renovation, it has been designated as a historic local landmark by the Iowa City Historic Preservation Commission. Speaks a lot to the era, she said. Petzl's menu matches the level of luxury and service that the hotel is. She's the cherry on top. I have the food, she has the beautiful place, Petzl said. The duo met at a suggestion of a mutual colleague who noted their similar personalities and business acumen. The pair started to collaborate after Iowa River Power's last brunch on March 26th. It was a great opportunity for both sides, Harrington concurred. And the Outback Steakhouse has closed its Cedar Rapids location. Signs notifying customers of the closure started to appear on the door of the Australian-themed restaurant on February 23. The restaurant's closure comes as its parent company, Bloomin Brands, decided to close 36 predominantly older, underperforming restaurants in the last quarter of 2023. Outback's three remaining Iowa hotels are located in Ankeny, Clive, and Sioux City. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Leap Day, February 29, on IRIS. You can obtain a recording of today's reading anytime on iowaradioreading.org. Thanks for listening. Have a great, safe day.
Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain, but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required, and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.